Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and I'm excited to be with you once again this Sunday. We are continuing our study in the book of Romans, and we have we have a lot to talk about. There are some important words that we'll have to give time to and defining some terms as we go, but I'm very excited about this one, and we'll be picking up in verse 28. Romans 8.28 is a common favorite of people. Yeah, I like it as well. And so we're going to start there. And so we're going to start with Romans 8, 28 through 30. And it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we're going to start with that, that chunk right there. But there's some important things we have to give time to in this. But last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit and how it transforms us and how it empowers us to endure suffering and hardship. That the Holy Spirit puts in us something that wasn't there before. That enables us to be different, to resist the, the desires of the flesh. And pursue the things of God. Now, Paul has directed his readers to the process by which they were saved. And he describes what many call the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. And Paul begins by reiterating in verse 28, the sovereignty of God to a persecuted church. Despite the difficulties the church in Rome was facing, God was going to use it for good. And the gravitas the weight of this concept is immense, and often cheapened by our own understanding of what's good. It says in Psalm 100, Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And what's being implied in Psalm 107 is that God is good even when the Jews were scattered. Because the backdrop there is likely during the Babylonian exile, when the Jews were brought out of Israel, and they were in captivity to the pagans. And yet God was still good, and they were to praise him for being good. It says in Psalm 34, Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
that there is this con this constant theme, this consistent theme through the Psalms that the Lord is good. But much of the Psalms were written when the Jews were in captivity. And so the Psalms became a place where the Jews would worship God in an environment that they didn't know, in a country that was foreign to them, that they would sing about longing to be in his temple before the temple was built or after the temple was destroyed and they were in captivity to pagan nations. And so the Psalms were kind of an anchor to the Jews during that time. And it helped them to remember that God is good, that God is on the throne, that he is sovereign. And we still have to praise that God because he is worthy to be praised. It says in Ecclesiastes that though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it will be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. When we read that phrase fear, we're talking about the fear of God in the Old Testament, Scholars agree that the, the term fear God is the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament have faith in God. That it's the same element, it's just being worded differently. The Hebrew is a little more poetic in places than Greek might be. And so sometimes we see some of that play out. But the bottom line is God is good even when it seems that sin wins. Even when it seems that evil has triumphed, God is still good, and God is still in control when it seems that evil is winning. The goodness of God, as the Jews understood, as demonstrated through the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and much of the Old Testament, the goodness of God is not bound up in our perception of what God ought to do. God is still good even when we don't understand. His purposes and his wisdom to order and govern this world far surpass our own. It says in Proverbs, Who hath ascended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? Every word of God is pure. And he is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Much of that, that bit from Proverbs is rhetorical. Who ascended into heaven and came back down? We know that to be God through Christ. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Obviously, the only one who can do that is God. Who can bound the waters in a garment? Again, God. Who has established all the ends of the earth? It is all about God. It's obvious that only God can do these things. God has ordered the world in a way according only to his wisdom, which is what Proverbs is ultimately anchored in, is that God has ordered our world in such a way that could only be done through his divine wisdom. That there is a reason to how God has ordered the world. And he didn't have to consult anyone on how to set up the world. God is masterfully guiding the development and flourishing of our world as well as calamity and famine. As it says in the Westminster Confession of Faith, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. And he alone, he, and he is alone 
in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made. Simply put, there is no want, or to, to use the, there, simply put, there is no, to use the old English word, want, or no need of goodness with God. God is the highest and most perfect good. There is no compromise with God. What God decrees is not only for our good, but it is for our greatest good. And all things, it says, work together for this good. The pleasant and hard things are all for our good. As it says in Genesis 50:20, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. Joseph talking to his brothers who had sold them into slavery as a young boy. But God works evil for his good purposes. That even in the heart, even when things don't make sense, and it seems like the darkness wins, even when it seems like God has ignored us. When we cry out to God, as the psalmist did, why do you stand there with your hands in your pockets? God is still good, and he is working in the hardships. He is working in what we see as evil for good. Because God's definition of good is not always our definition of good. And so when we pray for deliverance, when we, when we pray in the midst of hardships, our focus is on God to change us through the hardships. For God's purposes to be revealed to us and around us. As John Knox once wrote, Herein peculiarly differs the sons of God from the reprobate, meaning the sons of God from those outside of Christ. The sons of God know both prosperity and adversity to be the gifts of God only, as Job doth witness. God is working in that undesirable for our good. It is the term all things. And this tells us that all things have ever happened to us or could possibly happen to us are so ordered and controlled by God that the end result is inevitably and utterly our good. Even the worst things are used to... God is working in the undesirable for our highest and greatest good because he is a good God. As James Montgomery Boyce once wrote, it is the term all things. This tells us that all things that have ever happened to us or can possibly happen to us are so ordered and controlled by God that the end result is inevitably and utterly our good. Even the worst things are used to make us like Jesus Christ. For we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But it doesn't stop with external circumstances. God is working all things pertaining also to our salvation. We get to verse 29. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he may be the firstborn of many brothers. <clears throat> Couple that with verse 30. Those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also called. These two verses introduce to us what many have called the golden chain of salvation. Paul has deliberated for many chapters now in Romans on how we come to faith in Christ. 
And now Paul is explaining what happened to us at conversion from a theocentric point of view. This is what God is doing. This is what God was doing when you were saved. And notice that these are verbs. They're not nouns. We're not talking about the names of different doctrines. We're talking about actions that God has taken to enact our salvation. Because our salvation is 100% God. Solus Deus. God alone. And this is the doctrine we cannot live without. That everything that comes to us ultimately passes through God. We're talking about a chain. We're talking about how they're all linked together. And there's some complexities with how they relate to each other. But I want to go over very briefly what these words mean. And then work into how this applies to us. So the first term is foreknowledge. Those he foreknew. And that word foreknowledge literally means to know before. It says in 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. It says, elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. When we speak of foreknowledge, we simply mean to know beforehand. In terms of our, our salvation, God knew with absolute certainty who would and would not come to him. That God, God is sovereign even over our innermost thoughts, our innermost decisions. And it all flows from the knowledge and wisdom of God. So we have foreknowledge. But it says those that he foreknew, he also predestined. Now these two are directly parallel here. That he predestined. And predestined is a word that we don't always like to hear. It's a word that some people bristle at. But it is a biblical word. And I've, I've looked into the Greek. And the Greek word does mean to decide beforehand. And so we could render that as predestinate. To, to set one's destiny. It says in Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. For what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the Greek word literally means to decide beforehand. God decided beforehand who would be adopted into his family. And that's not an easy thing to wrap our heads around. I don't think it is really possible for us to fully comprehend what that means, what that entails. But our coming to faith was planned out by God. That part of God's will for your life was whether or not you would be saved. And that is something that we, can, we have to perceive in faith. I don't understand the fuller inner workings of that. I just know that I was in no position to choose the things of God. To want the things of God. But God broke my heart. And he put in me a heart of flesh. Of living flesh as we talked about last week. And that he did something in me that changed my nature. 
bringing me off of the path of destruction and into his family. That apart from God, I would have had no desire for these things. But God did what I can't do, what I couldn't do. And he gave me a new mind, a new nature, a new will, according to the Spirit. And that is... That is hard to wrap your head around. I'm not saying it's not. But it is what the Word of God says. And I'm not trying to be fancy. I'm not trying to be creative and come up with different ways to explain this. Simply put, this is what the Word says. And whether it is easy or hard, this is what the Word says. But to what purpose did he predestinate? Which is another good question. And Paul writes that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and that Christ would be the firstborn of many brethren. We were predestined unto Christ, unto the family of God. We read early in Romans 8 that we were adopted as sons of God, and that we are joint heirs with Christ. But that was not an opportunistic endeavor. God had planned out long beforehand to whom and how this would be done. The Greek word where we get predestined has in it the word horizon. And Martin Lloyd-Jones suggested that the word signifies that it is God having foreknown certain people, takes them out of that far-off category and puts them within the circle of his saving purposes. In other words, he says, he has marked out a particular horizon for them. In short, part of God's purpose when he made you, when he made me, included our relation to him. And he set out to adopt people into his family before the creation of the world. And he, part of his ordering of the world, was to bring us into the kingdom. And he set out to do that with names in mind. We are the product of that. Number three, those whom he predestined he also called. The Greek word called is transferred directly in English. The Greek word is kalios, and it means summon or call, which is likely where we get the word call. God calls those he predestined, that he summons us, he, he beckons us to come. It says in John 6 that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He goes on to say, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That while we are predestined, while we are um, foreknown or whatever words you want to use, that doesn't negate the fact that God beckons us all to come. That God didn't um, limit it to, all of, to certain individuals. But when Christ came and he preached the kingdom, he didn't seek out the elect. He didn't seek out those chosen few, as many would tell you. But Christ preached to all, and he beckoned all to come. Because regardless, we all need the gospel. The ones that are predestined, to use that, that word, are the ones that do. Why? Because they come unto God. They answer the call. We are called by God. He summons us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin to the point where we must come to God to be cleansed of it. He doesn't 
will our salvation in a way that makes us like puppets. That simply put, he changes our will to want the things of God. That apart from God, we have no desire to be righteous, to be holy, to know God. It says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness because though we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And because we ignored God, our minds became darkened and depraved. And so there's a duality of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. You will hear some that will tell you that free will is a myth. I will tell you that there is such a thing as free will. That we do hear about God choosing people. But we also hear about people making choices in the same Bible. Apart from God, our will... Our free will is bound to a depraved mind, and we are morally unable to come to God. So the Holy Spirit changes us to be able to make that choice by revealing the things of God in such a way that we cannot ignore them. It says in 1 Corinthians, yet among the nature, I'm, I'm sorry, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And so, God reveals himself to us, and we respond. And that is simply what we mean by calling. And those whom he called, he also justified and we've talked about justification for a long time now, about being declared just. When God calls us and we respond to this call, we are declared just in his sight, having been cleansed of sin by the cross. It says in 1 John chapter 1 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Colossians chapter 1 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So justification is also of God. That while we confess our sins, it is God that justifies. It is God that makes us right with himself. That we are saved by God and from God. That we would be condemned in our sins if God had not redeemed us. But God has declared us righteous. He hasn't made us righteous. He's counted us righteous. And we are now his adopted children. It says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so the common thread we're seeing here with these, these verbs is it is all of God, that God provides, that God calls, that God summons, that God reveals, God justifies, and lastly, God glorifies. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. First Peter chapter 5 says, And after you have suffered a little, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glorified, this idea of being glorified literally means to be glorified, to be made new. And glorification is that final status. That final state where our sinful nature is completely stripped away and we will enter into the gates of heaven as his glorified redeemed saints and we will worship in the presence of god in an environment where sin doesn't exist by this work of being predestined to be conformed to christ which we've also called being sanctified we will be completed in that endeavor and we will be glorified that is made fully new in the pattern of christ we will be transformed according to the divine nature of which we are partakers. We will enter into heaven as fully sanctified saints of God. That God is working in us daily, minute by minute, second by second, to conform us to the image of Christ, to fit us for heaven. It says in Second Peter chapter 1, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly love, and brotherly, sorry, brotherly affect, affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more dil diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. So again, we see these words calling and election. Election is a word we'll see a little bit more as we dig into Romans 9 through 11. But Peter is demonstrating that being fruitful in the Christian life confirms our calling of God, our predestination to use that earlier word. 
So our sanctification, number one, it proves the aforementioned things to be true. That this idea of foreknowledge and predestination and being drawn to God, this is proven, this is verified by our pursuit of righteousness. And two, it draws us closer to Christ as we resemble his pattern and nature more and more. As Paul writes in Philippians 1, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be sure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So to summarize these five is God alone. God alone does these things. This is how God is working in our lives. From before we were born, God was setting the scene. He was bringing things into, into being. He was setting up those dominoes. Setting up how he was going to bring you into the world and what his will was for your life. He was setting all that up. That goes back to before the foundations of the world even. That ultimately God's will for your life includes all the minute details. Your coming to Christ did not take God by surprise. He was preparing for it. And it starts before you were born, before the foundations of the world. He, he knew you. And he predestined to bring you into his family, to adopt you. And then he called you to come unto Christ and receive what he wanted to give you. His grace, the Holy Spirit, you received these things. And then he justified you. He declared you just in his sight. That despite your sins, he counted you as his perfect child. He counted you righteous. And he is in the process of making you righteous, of breaking away all those, all the broken pits and sm smoothing out the rough edges and making you a beautiful pot. Like it says in Isaiah 64. That we are all the work of his hands. And that process will be completed when we enter into heaven. And this is good news, given what Paul was saying in Romans 7. If you remember about doing the things I hate. About wrestling with sin. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But there is a coming glory that will be revealed. And we will worship God in a perfect environment. As Jonathan Edwards once wrote... Heaven is a world of love, because God is love. And when we go to heaven, we will love perfectly, because God is perfect, and we've been made new in his, according to his nature. And we will know him perfectly, and we will love perfectly. And that sums up these five in what we call the golden chain. And that leaves us with a very valid question. So these five points, these five verbs, are the doctrine we cannot live without. How then do we live? What is the use of predestination? What is the application here? And Joel Beakey, in his commentary, writes, Faith in God's providence, 
undergirds the Christian's every effort to honor his Lord. It is his shield against all the attacks of Satan. To this strong tower, the Lord Jesus Christ sent his disciples for safety under the assaults of worldly anxieties. Benjamin Warfield said a firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. Such faith grants us solid comfort and impels us into active ser service. When we talk about predestination, A, we want to talk about how it's about salvation and how God brings us into his family, but it's bigger than that. Because if God was sovereign over our salvation, then he is surely sovereign over all the little things that he is providing for everything. Everything comes from his hands. As the song says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That there is something really beautiful, really special about the providence of God that permeates everything. And when we see everything in light of God's providence for his people, it changes everything. When you can look at hardships as being part of the providence of God, knowing that it is going to work in you, that he is going to work in you through this for your good. As the Heidelberg Catechism says in question number one, what is my only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins, and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me, that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. It makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. So that was question one. Question number 28 asks, What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? Answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, <coughs> we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand, that without his will they cannot so much as move. And the catechisms, while in no way inspired scripture, are helpful to us in thinking through how these these teachings of scripture work by giving us brief statements that sum up these big concepts. The Heidelberg Catechism explains this subject of God's providence and four advantages, four benefits to us of this concept. One, we can endure hardships knowing they are from God for our development. Two, we can thank God for good things for all blessings flow from God. Three, we can rejoice in the wondrous truth that God chose us, not because we were deserving, but because his grace was so great. We've talked about those three. But the fourth brings us into the remaining verses of Romans 8. We can have surety 
that nothing can separate us from God. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul presents to us five unanswerable questions to draw out the application of the doctrine we cannot live without, that it is all of God. And he starts off with a rhetorical question. What shall we say of these things? And then he brings in five questions to consider. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing. Psalm 118 says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, and I will not fear. What can man do to me? Number two, how will he not also give us all things? The Greek for, word for all is usually used in the plural sense to mean large numbers. If God is good, then for him to withhold good things from his people would be an impossibility. So again, how will he not give us all things? Can't be answered. Question three, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can question the efficacy of of God's justification of lost sinners. It is God who justifies, not any man. Therefore, we praise God alone for our salvation. Psalm 43 says, O oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me, let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. Then I will go to the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Upon the harp I will praise thee, O God, my God. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. So again, who can bring a charge? Who can question your salvation? No one, because it is only God that saves. So whether or not I am saved is up to God. And the only one that can say anything tangibly about that is God. And God said in Isaiah, Thus is the one who formed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. So who can bring a charge against 
the redeemed? No one. It can't be answered. Number four, who is to condemn? Obviously, this is rhetorical, because only God can condemn the guilty soul. But recall how this chapter began. There is, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life has conquered the law of sin and death. For God did what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He conquered sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Hebrews 4 says, Let us therefore, in light of what God has done in us, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have access to God. We are not condemned. Question 5. Who shall separate us? This is the sum of the entire chapter. If all these things are true, then who or what could possibly separate us from the love of Christ? The only thing that separated us from God before was sin. But we have been forgiven of sin. We can be redeemed of sin, and that separation no longer exists. And Paul quotes one of the Psalms that the persecuted church likely would have known, would have been very familiar with, as they are being as they are being hunted down by Rome, as they are persecuted, as they are reviled, as they are harassed, and all all these words we could use. And Paul quotes Psalm forty four. Yea, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. This is how the church felt. And rem remember, he's writing to a church. He's writing to a church in the middle of the new Babylon. He's writing to a church in the middle of Rome. It's not a good place to be. That's not a fun place. That's not um, youth camp, let's have some fun material. This is, it is work to be the church in Rome. It is hard. It is tedious. Because it seems that everything is stacked against them. And this is the chapter. This is the, the backdrop of Romans chapter 8. And he closes. By reiterating his previous statement about present sufferings. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I'm reminded of a hymn that says, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Under the shadow of your throne, your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure. We are safe with God. That while... They may kill the body. The word of God abides within us still. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. There is nothing that Rome or Babylon can do to us.
Not to our soul. Not to the things of God. Because God will reign. And death, death is not a, not a separation from God for the, for the church. The only thing that separated from us from God before was sin. Was a spiritual death. So when the body dies, for those who are in Christ, it's not a goodbye. It's a reconciliation. Because we go to be with Jesus. We get to worship God devoid of the flesh. Matthew Henry puts it this way. At last you must part, for you must die. Then farewell. All this world accounts must val most valuable. And what hast thou left, poor soul, who has not Christ? But that which thou wouldst gladly part with, and cannot, the condemning guilt of all thy sins. But the soul that is in Christ, when other things are pulled away, cleaves or clings to Christ. And these separations pain him not. When death comes, that breaks all other unions, even that of the soul and body. It carries the believer's soul into the nearest union with his beloved Lord Jesus and the full enjoyment of him forever. Paul sums up the freedom we have in Christ, the glory that will be revealed to us one day, the hope that we have, in five verbs and five questions. The unbreakable bond between God and those he has called and taken as his own. We come unto Christ fully in faith and repentance, and we become recipients of all that he is and all that is in him. And that is the glorious riches of Romans chapter 8. I pray that this has been profitable to you. Romans 8 is a favorite of mine. We could go much lower through Romans 8. There is so much in here. Romans 8 is a chapter that all of us would do well to return to frequently, to continue to go to. There's so much to learn in Romans. Romans 8 is very much the climax of this wonderful book. Hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4. 4. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That is something that I've written, and that is something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of his holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4. 4.